This is episode 38 of the Immunology Podcast, the Urinary Bladder and Placenta with Dr. Indira Mayasorkar. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Raab. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today we have Dr. Indira Mysorakar from Baylor College of Medicine on the podcast here to talk about her research on host microbial interactions in the urinary bladder and placenta. We've also got a usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up, but first... News for graduate students and postdocs that are participating in an immunology journal club. Stem Cell Technologies is offering you the, an opportunity to win $300 worth of refreshments to fuel your journal club and your discussions. To find out more and enter this sponsorship contest, visit stemcell.com forward slash journal club contest. Well, how are you? Good, good. So I learned something interesting. I didn't realize the Netherlands had a king who does things. There was some announcement the king was donating money for something or another in the order of billions of dollars for environmental activity. I, I saw it on just like a news feed and I'm like, the king of the mm. Netherlands is a thing? So I'm worried well, about things. No, no, I think you must you must have it um, confused with uh, today's a couple of days ago was what is called the Prinsjesdag, which is a, where the king is involved in announcing the budget for the year. Oh, so it's not his money. He just announces he just announces other people's money that was used to be yeah, his, his money. The Dutch people's money, you know. Uh, and I do. There's going to be a. I have to admit, I did not yet watch the the kind of the overview of what has been discussed on that day. Um, but it's a, like a very fancy day. The, the the king goes to like to give the speech and to do to this day in like this this very traditional carriage. It's carried through the Hague in the carriage that until at, at least I don't know. Last time I saw it, it had some debatable. Draw like like pictures on the side, including you know the the some of the colonization uh, leftovers. But it's really it's really a big thing, and then people are like lining up the streets just to see the the king arrive in his carriage. But did you know? Did you know that the queen of the Netherlands is Argentinian? By no, it's a, is that a why fun you're there? fact. Yes, that's they just give him visas to Argentines like like hot 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 just like uh, hot bread or. So it's it's a thing. Uh, so and that's actually very. I think he's like the most, the better, most beloved member of the royal family is actually her. Like she has, she has a better. Um, so I'm not sure if you're gonna get in trouble for saying this. Uh, William, we love you. We're, you're great. Um, except the Republicans don't like you, but that's okay. Uh, talking about you know kings and queens these days. Very interesting. So yeah, I came here with it with a hope. Of becoming a princess, but then you know it's only it's only it's only girls. All the all the all the princesses are women, so that did, did not work out for me. Yeah, modern monarchy, you know, it could happen. You never know, princesses, right? right? Yeah, I think my I think that ship has sailed. Oh well. All right. Well, let's hop into the papers here. I see what you've picked for one of them, so I'm going to do a microbiota one, and then you can do a microbiota one, and you can come to the conversion. All right. How does that work? Hit me. All right, so this one, gut commensal bacteria enhance pathogenesis of a tumorigenic murine retrovirus. And Cell reports, first author is Jessica Spring, last author is Tatiana Golovkina, and it came out September 13th, there we go, of this year. So this is 
this gets in immuno-oncology in a different way. It's high level. There's a, a, a mirroring leukemia virus that when you infect mice with it, gives mice leukemia over time, early stage leukemia. And we know the microbiota tunes the immune system. They were trying to figure out if it had an effect here. And they found that germ-free mice develop leukemia slower. So that's their first line. So they looked at this, germ-free mice develop slower, mice given antibiotics develop slower. If you give it selective antibiotics, they can show that it's not the anaerobic bacteria ablation that's important, but the other bug, antibiotics. So specific bugs seem to do it, not all of them, but then they found that like, well, it's not like it's just anaero anaerobes or aerobes or gram positives or gram negatives. It's really by bug because they did a couple of them and showed there wasn't a patterning. And so like, well, these two don't have a pattern. There's not a pattern. But they basically show the different microbiota can or can't, but then in a commensal environment, you're going to have them, right? So then that's what really matters. And then it slows progression. So that was step one. And it has nothing to do with viral load. So viral load is unaffected here. It's not like there's more virus and thus more cancer. So that, that was step one. So then they were trying to figure out what was going on, it had nothing to do with cytokine. So it's not IL-6 mediated. It's not the microbiota tune up your cytokine responses. And so you get more of it. Um, what they found instead is that the effect was ameliorated in, uh, there was no difference in rag knockout mice. So rag knockout mice had enhanced susceptibility to this, and it didn't matter if you're germ-free or not. So all the differences went away if you got rid of the adaptive response. So something about the adaptive immune system relating to the microbiota affects the ability of the virus to generate cancer. That's what they got next. So then they did a gene expression signature and did some subtraction out of the different groups to try to see what genes are most important related to, um, and then they, they did some targeted studies. They didn't just try to compare everything. They started looking specifically adaptive immune genes, genes known to be regulated by the microbiota, so on and so forth. And they found three, two of which ended up being important. One is serpin, nine, serpin B, 9B, the serine protease inhibitor that acts and suppresses granzyme B. Another one is RNF128, which is a lig ubiquitin ligase that ubiquitates CD3 and CD40 in T cells leading to degradation. They confirmed their findings in the germ-free mice. And then they also did it with monoassociation studies with some of the same bugs that were shown to cause an effect and not and saw the same pattern. So the bugs that had an effect on cancer, uh, you know, on this cancer progression were shown to upregulate both these genes. All right. So they have now a genetic link. Then they went and CRISPR'd the mice to get rid of these genes and showed that getting rid of these two genes, but not the third gene they found, which is called VSIG4. Um, that crispering got rid of the effect, or most of it. Didn't quite get it back to baseline, but it got it most of the way back down. And so then they tried to get into how this works, and they found that it had nothing to do with TLR signaling, but that it had to do with NOD signaling. So TLR might knockout mice had no effect on this process, but RIP. To K, rip K2, which is downstream and nod, if you knock it out, there's no induction of the genes and thus no increased cancer. So what's happening is the microbiota is signaling through nod 2 to rip K to induce these to generate an immunosuppressive signal 
the calm your immune system down. And that immunosuppressive signal lets cancer progress faster. Trader microbiota. By the way, sorry, you say that doesn't happen with every strain? With specific- right. An SPF mouse will have strains that do this, mm-hmm. right? But if you then do mono-association studies, not every bug does it. Right. So not every bug's going to signal through Nod2 to do this. Okay. But duh. Yeah. I mean, that's very interesting, right? Because we already know from many studies that have associated specific microbiota to response to uh, cancer immunotherapy or... or, or, or uh, prognosis in tumors so it's i guess we got to get some mechanism here of action yep very interesting oh that microbiota always getting in the way always being everywhere all right so then i will continue on uh microbiota related immunology um up to a story that i think is very very interesting this was actually a suggestion uh, by a listener, and I think it was excellent, and I really enjoyed reading this paper, and also a different paper that was published uh, in the same, uh, published kind of co-published in the same journal, because they both kind of came down to the same, con- very similar conclusions using fairly different models. So this is a thing, fascinating story. The paper is called uh, Aurora T Positive Cell Instructs Gut Microbiota Specific T-Rex cell differentiation, uh, quite a mouthful. And it was, I think, rightfully published in Nature uh, on the 7th of uh, September. First author, Ranit Ketmi, and this is from the lab of uh, Dan Littman at NYU School of Medicine. And in this, in this uh, paper, the idea is to try to understand what are the antigen-presenting uh, cells that are inducing uh, peripheral T-Rex or induced T-Rex in the gut. So again, how do you generate t- tolerance to, to microbiota? And so we don't really understand which are the cells that are instructing T-Rex to do this. So they have this model, I think it's very nice, uh, from uh, a uh, Helicobacter hepaticus, which colonizes uh, mice and is found well in, the, in, the, in the intestine of mice. And they have um, CD4 cells that have, are expressing a Helicobacter hepatica-specific DCR. And if they transfer these cells in, in colonized mice, basically they end up having a population of, um, of transgenic cells that are proliferating in the colon and are mostly uh, of a induced Treg um, a phenotype, and they also some T follicular helper cells are also seen amongst these transgenic cells. So, this under normal circumstances, these cells will kind of uh, generate a toler- tolerogenic uh, profile. But the authors know that. Um, so the, the question is, who is instructing this T-Rex? And they know that if they knock out uh, MHC class two on using a CD11 C Cree uh, mouse they will lose this induction of T-Rex. And so initially they, they kind of think, well, clearly who's, ex- who's expressing CD11C? Oh, well, DCs, CDCs, CDC1, CDC2s. But the thing is that if they deplete CDC1s or CDC2 using other mechanisms, they don't really, cannot really um, imitate or kind of recapitulate this effect. So in the end, what they realize is that this is about a completely different population, which uh, has a specific characteristic, which is expressing Roar Gamma T. So the Roar Gamma T 
positive uh, antigen presenting cells. So they start kind of looking into that and they find um, two potential candidates. One of them is ILC3s, which are known for expressing uh, RORGAMA-T. They also express um, MHC, uh, class 2, and they have already been kind of associated with, with antigen presenting in the gut. Um, but what is interesting is that's not the only population of cells they find that could potentially be mediating this, which there's a different type of kind of new subset of antigen presenting cells that uh, that the name is a little bit not clear. So they call them Janus cells. Uh, they're also called Tetis cells uh, or in, in, so in a different publication, but there are these new antigen presenting cells that are characterized by expressing CD11C. So that's why if you use the CD11C cream mice, you're also targeting them. They're expressing T, and very interestingly, they are they are expressing IRA. This uh, gene that is normally expressed on medullary thymic epithelial cells, and is important in order to generate tolerance. So this is, is a gene that is uh, related is involved in presenting self antigen to cells in the thymus. So this this cells they're clearly a different population that comes up and is there and is. Uh, this author, the other are not really capable with the mouse models they use to differentiate which is the population that is really responsible for inducing this uh, regulatory T cell phenotype. But these cells are there, and there's and the these Rorgamati positive cells are sufficient to induce Treg, which is also very important. If they have a CD11C knockout. Uh, MHC, no MHC class two in CD11C cells, but then they re-express in Rorgamma T positive cells, and that is sufficient for them to re-induce the expression of regulatory T cells. However, they see that that's not the case for the other, so the follicular helper cells that they also normally see. In that case, CD11C positive cells are necessary for follicular helper cells. Um, so I thought it was very interesting because this kind of really gives us a completely new understanding of the induction of regulatory T cells in the colon and in the intestine. And as sometimes happens, this actually was also very, at the same day, on the same journal, the same, um, uh, how do you say, um, edition of Nature, they also was another different group, this case from uh, uh, the lab of, of um, Alexander Rudensky and also Chrysothemis brown uh, at uh, Sloan Catering, <laughs> like in the same cities, like, you know, like they're, they're fighting in the same city. This is really cool. So they also came up to a very similar conclusion. They call these uh, Teti cells. So they use a slightly different name, but they also find, and they describe this population of cells that are Rorgamati positive, IRA positive, CD11C positive, and they're very important for mediating the induction of like peripheral tolerance in the gut. Um, they they use different mouse models, and in their case, they their data suggests that these are the one exclusive responsible cells, and the ILC3s are not responsible because they have a they have a model in which they can differentiate the contribution for each of the different uh, cell types. So I think it's super exciting, a super exciting result, and this really might be the the the, the missing link in our understanding on, of of uh, gut uh, tolerance. So I think kudos for for uh, both uh, groups, and I'm looking forward to see what else we learn about these cells. I mean, 
there are this kind of hybrid medullary uh, timing cells with, with antigen presentic cells. I think it's fascinating. So they're not ILC3s, though, even though no. the abstract kind of calls it like ILC3s. There's something that's ILC3-like, but not actually an ILC3. Yeah, and ILC3s don't express IRA. Right. So that's this whole IRA thing. And this, is, this was, I think that was what really caught my attention. This is pretty cool, right? There's like, there are a piece of the thymus in the gut. It's all a smear. That's my new thing. It's all a smear. <laughs> so yeah, kudos to the authors. Wherever you are, it just streaks out for what you need, and it's a smear. <laughs> so, well, what, what is your next story after this? I mean... All right. Well, it's still tissue immunology, right? Instead mm -hmm. of you know, floating around. But this is a cytotoxic CD8 T cells may be drivers of tissue destruction in Sjogren's disease. First author is Naoki Kaneko, and last author is Shiv Pillai. Um, it is in Scientific Reports, published the 14th of September. So Sjogren's is one of these weird autoimmune disorders. It's poorly understood and does often, it does all types of things, but it's often involved with salivary gland destruction. So you have really dry mouth and stuff, but it does a bunch of weird things. Like if you don't know what it is in medical, in medicine land, it looks autoimmune, you could call it Sjogren's and you might be right, but that's what people do. Um, so... They claim, and I, I can't back this up or not, that there's not been a really good immunological profiling of Sjogren's cell tissue. So they do one of these, and they look at both CD8 cells and CD4 cells, and teeth, you know, and B cells and T's. They, they look at everything and try to start narrowing it down. And they basically say, we already know a lot about CD4 cells, so we're going to look at other things too. And they start with the CD4 cells and kind of catch it, but then they, they switch to CD8 because there was a bunch of them there. And like, huh, no one's really talked about this before, my sense of paper, and started deep diving into it and trying to see what these cells were doing. And they're all granzyme positive, which apparently had not been described before that these, these infiltrate, and they took human tissue, which is one of the important things. So they had not described before that human salivary gland tissue from Sjogren's patients has a bunch of cytotoxic T cells in it. And then they basically went down this path and showed that there's a whole bunch of IG4, there's a whole bunch of apoptotic cells going on. They kind of did some co-localization and were looking to figure out that the, the CD8 cells were hanging out and were getting killed. The cells that were getting killed by CD8 cells were acinar cells and ductal cells. And so that was kind of a new thing. And so... I mean, the paper is a scientific report paper and not a science paper because it's pretty narrow. But the concept that an autoimmune disease is being driven by direct tissue destruction by CD8 cells, you know, you either know that about an autoimmune disease or you don't. And we don't, didn't know what Sjogren's was, what was causing the damage in Sjogren's. And they show this is happening here. It's a lot of IF because it's human samples, right? They can see the fast ligand expressing coming up. They can see co-localization of the CD8 cells. And, and so it, it's a short paper, but it really nails at least the fact that you actually know what the bad actor is now for Sjogren's, which is interesting. And that's why even the paper short it was published, because like that's not known. There's no, there was no immune-mediated mechanism for the disease. It's autoimmune, we know that, and because there's you know anti-nuclear antibodies and other stuff that's been well described. Um, but not not what was doing the damage. 
So the fact that there's direct tissue damage is interesting here and apoptosis being driven. Right, because many other autoimmune diseases like, like lupus, for example, is mostly mediated by the deposition of like this antibodies and, and, and then you have problems with your kidneys and problems with your tissues, but it's not direct uh, tissue uh, destruction, I guess. So it is not a given that that's how it's going to be. Yeah, no, exactly. So like no one knows and now we know. And that lets you start thinking about treatments. Okay. So cool, stuff on my end. Well, All right. I think you got one more. Is it also a microbiome paper? No, but we are continuing with autoimmunity. Yeah, okay, so, that works. And as I mentioned before, look at, the, look, look at my flawless uh, segue. As I mentioned, lupus. It's lupus what, we, what we're talking about. In this case, it is lupus. Uh, but then it's not anymore because this paper, also really cool. I only have cool papers today describes the results of a clinical trial using CD19 cars to treat lupus. So not cancer, autoimmunity. I mean, it's a new era for CAR T-cells, in my opinion. So this paper comes from, um, uh, the paper is, is titled Anti-CD19 CAR T-cell Therapy for Refractory Systemic Lupus Erythematosis. So this is a hard one for the non English speakers. Uh, it was published in Nature Medicine. First authors, Andreas Mackensen, Fabian Müller, and Dimitrios Mujakakos from the labs of uh, Gerhard Kronke and Georg Schett um, at the University of Erlangen in Germany. So in this case, they took, so they, 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 they tried to kind of look at lupus in a different way. So we know that a lot of the damage caused by lupus is mediated by very highly activated autoreactive B cells. They are there, you know, throwing around tons of autoreactive antibodies and these antibodies get stuck in the, you know, the, in the kidneys, they generate damage, they generate inflammation and, and it just generates horrible, it's a very horrible disease, especially some people are refractory to any treatment that are have like immunosuppressive drugs are usually used for, for SLE. Uh, but some people stop responding. They don't respond to these drugs. So the, the, the authors, I think that the logic behind this, this clinical trial was to think, well, if B cells are the problem, what if we get rid of the B cells? And this is not new. So other clinical trials testing ways of depleting B cells have been done, particularly using the antibody, the anti-CD20 antibody rituximab. And um, these, these clinical trials gave kind of mixed results because, and it's probably because uh, an antibody rituximab cannot really reach every B cell in the body, particularly those that are lodging somewhere in the tissue. They're a bit out of, out of the way, out of reach for a systemically kind of infused antibody. Um, but we, we know the, of a treatment that has the side effect of depleting your B cells very efficiently, which is CD, car, uh, CD19 CAR T cell treatment. So patients that receive this treatment become basically B cell depleted for, for the life, uh, for life. And they need to re, to get all these immunoglobulins, a uh, treatment. So they also saw, well, if CAR T cells are so good at depleting B cells, why don't we use them? So they took five patients uh, that were is very had very severe SLE that were refractory to to drugs and in kind of a compassionate use uh, um, situation they infused um, not a very high dose but a, about a one million cells per kilogram 
of car, CD19 cards, similar kind of very standard CD19 cards, and they checked what happened. And the results were amazing. All of the patients had massive uh, benefit from the treatment. Uh, the cars killed off all the B cells in these patients within a couple of days. They had a very strong drop and presumably also of, cell, of, of B cells in tissues and B cells not necessarily in the bloodstream. Um, and every patient had a massive improvement of their symptoms. To the point that uh, the, the, the patients had basically controlled disease without any extra therapy for the whole time they had been treated. Some of the patients were already two years in the treatment. Interestingly, they, the B cells recovered. So actually this treatment was not permanent. Uh, they did, the, the B cells started appearing again uh, around 100 uh, days after the infusion. But still then, the lupus did not come back. And these activated T the B cells that are characteristic of lupus didn't re really return either. So the patients had a kind of a very strong global reduction in autoantibodies, particularly those against double-stranded DNA, nucleosomes that are very uh, classic, classically seen in this disease. Um, and they show that these B cells that came back had a completely different phenotype, more of a uh, naive phenotype expressing, you know, IgM, IgD, um, and uh, they really did not express any of these autoantibodies. Uh, interestingly enough, though, their patients did not lose titers of antibodies against vaccinations. So probably the type of, of B cells that are uh, uh, keeping this memory, immunological memory, was not affected by the treatment, which I thought was very kind of remarkable. Uh, so it seemed to be an extremely effective treatment for patients that have, you know, really vacated all other options and did result in very little side effects uh, in, in the patients that are seen sometimes with CAR-T. So you have this uh, cytokine storm, it can be very strong and be very dangerous, but these patients had very mild uh, side effects uh, of the CAR-T cell treatment. So there you go. Maybe we have a a ray of light for, for very severe uh, lupus patients. And that would be amazing given the clinical outcomes. I mean, right? An old drug for a new thing. I love it. You're calling CAR-T therapies uh, old drugs? Yeah, by now, you know. So 2020? <laughs> I know, right? It's like we have to get something new. We're so 2010s. Like when was the first patient? Like 10 years ago? I was like in high school. It only counts when it clinically approves. You were in high school in 2010. Thank you, Brenda. I was not in high school in 2010. <laughs> <laughs> Almost though. I was two years out of high school in 2010. I was in the middle of grad, so I was almost done with grads. Well, I think we're already attesting in this, in, this, in this podcast that you you old. Yeah, I know. You boomer. I'm, I'm working towards it. I'm an elder <laughs> millennial, technically. Elder. Almost. I am millennial. Barely. 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 Okay. You know, this I like will... little, I'm like I'm on the cusp of Gen X and millennial. <laughs> my music okay. taste is Gen X, but my technology skills are millennial. Okay, well, that's that's the good. I'm glad it's not the other way around. Exactly. That would be sad. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> so yeah, that is what I have to share for today. So I'm very excited about our guest. Yes. Are, are you? 
I am, and we're going to be speaking to Dr. Indira Mysorkar at the Baylor College of Medicine in just a moment. But before we get to that, whether you're looking to attend an immunology conference this year or to expand your network, make the most out of your experience by downloading our collection of tools to help you prepare for your next event. Our downloadable checklists and guides include recommendations on how to get ready before attending conferences, tips for networking, best practices for your LinkedIn profile, and more. Download the conference toolkit at Stem Cell Technologies at their website, www.stemcell.com slash conference hyphen toolkit. Today, we are talking to Dr. Indira Maistorekar. She is E.I. Wagner Endowed Professor of Medicine and Chief of Basic and Translational Research at the Baylor College of Medicine in Texas. And she's going to talk to us about her research in very interesting areas, including the effects of, of SARS-CoV-2 infection in maternal, uh, maternal placenta and in pregnancy, and also very interesting research on the inflammation and aging and how that affects urinary tract uh, immunity, health. So we're very happy to talk to her today, and we welcome you to the Immunology Podcast. Thank you very much, Brenda and Jason. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for coming on. All right. so. I'll start because uh, if we talk about the immune system and either the placenta and COVID or the urinary tract and the bladder, it's all still host microbiome, which Brenda knows is my favorite subject. So I was wondering if you could give us kind of um, the high level primer on the host microbiome, starting with the urinary tract to go from there and how that relates to the immune system, because it's a very different environment than what I'm used to say the gut or other people think of with the skin or even the lungs. So if you can maybe start there and what makes it unique, what's similar and what the, what the big issues in the field are. I'm very happy to talk about uh, both of my favorite organs. Uh, although I have to say the bladder is my first love because that's where I uh, did my initial training. Um, although my PhD was in the intestine. So I have, I have my gut antecedents. <laughs> um, so in, in the urinary tract, you mentioned the microbiome, uh, which I will touch upon a little bit, but I mostly I study um, host microbial interactions. Um, and in the case of the placenta, that does involve some microbiota, uh, commensal microbiota. But typically in the urinary tract, what we're looking at is, is how the physiology of the, of the urinary tract mucosa, which is called the urothelium, um, is affected uh, with age, is affected uh, upon infection with uropathogenic E. coli, which are one of the primary causative agents of urinary tract infections, which are extremely common infections in women. Um, and we look at the immune response uh, to infections. And while studying sort of more traditional uh, pathogen, microbial pathogenesis, like what happens when the bacteria come in uh, to the urinary tract mucosa environment and, and the impact they have on the host uh, tissue, we started look, looking at, we started uncovering several interesting uh, aspects. Historically, we identified that first the bacteria can, can actually establish reservoirs within the bladder wall, within the urinary tract mucosa, which can then seed recurrent infections. This was very a big paradigm shift in our understanding uh, because we people always thought that all recurrent infections were potentially coming in as fresh uh, inocula from the fecal flora up into the vaginal um, uh, mucosa and then into the 
urinary tract. Um, that still, of course, does happen, but the bladder also uh, can serve as a source of recurrent infection. Um, the other aspect that we uh, started getting into in the more translational angle is that uh, women not only suffer from UTIs throughout their life, but when they become postmenopausal or, or getting older, their incidence uh, increases even more. Um, and also the other, many other conditions also increase. Uh, and, and no real explanation or understanding is there about why, other than the fact that maybe there's, there's a drop in estrogen. Um, and so as we started looking more and more into, into the urinary tract because as it ages, we've uncovered some really interesting uh, aspects, which is that the entire immune landscape of the aging bladder is different from that of a young bladder. And the immune landscape of the aging female bladder is quite distinct from that of the male bladder. So, so it's a sex and age-specific phenomenon, um, which, which we are very much invested in uh, with, the, the, with the discovery that the aging bladder hosts, harbors essentially what, are, what look like large lymph nodes inside in, in the submucosa of the bladder. So they're, they're bona fide tertiary lymphoid tissue. So they kind of are like, yeah, lymph nodes or, or spleen. But now they're in the bladder submucosa, and they produce uh, they, they mature B cells, plasma cells, which make antibody, which we show then is, is significantly increased in the urinary uh, space as well as in, in the serum. And Jason, to your question about the, the urinary microbiome, uh, or it's called the urobiome, uh, people are really starting to investigate what the component, what the composition is of the urobiome and potentially what the impact is on host biology. Uh, that's still being uncovered. Um, what is, what is, has been shown is that the urobiome changes with age, changes with menopause, changes with pregnancy, but how and why and what, uh, what is the impact is still very much uh, an open question. But with the aging bladder mucosa having significantly higher levels of immunoglobulin A being secreted, generated and secreted into the mucosa, there might be a whole different relationship going on with the uromicrobiota as well that, that needs to be um, isolated. Um, so, so yes, so UTIs are common and occur even more in aging. Um, several chronic inflammatory conditions also occur more with aging. And we think that we have identified um, one particular source of it, which is these uh, tertiary lymphoid structures. And both in our animals and in, in, in a large uh, cohort of women, postmenopausal women, we've been able to show, and women have these tertiary lymphoid structures as well, um, that presence of these structures is positively associated with increased risk of UTIs, increased, decreased duration between recurrences of infection, and overall adverse um, uh, outcomes uh, in, in women. So understanding this immunological basis and then identifying um, therapeutic interventions that can minimize or reduce this inflammatory uh, infiltrate um, hopefully will, will change uh, how we treat women, not only for the chronic, not only for urinary tract infections, but also for the chronic inflammatory conditions that are, that, that are present with age. So if I may be very simplistic, the whole idea of the, the urine is a sterile liquid, it's clearly a myth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and in fact, there, there's been a discussion on Twitter just yesterday about uh, 
you know, it is not sterile. You know, we've always thought that it's sterile. Uh, it clearly doesn't have the the abundance of microbiota that we know exists uh, in, in the vaginal mucosa, in the oral mucosa, and in, in the in, in, in the intestine. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it is it is a low biomass microbiome. But they clearly are um, clearly are, uh, are microbiota there, um, and they sh and and their composition can change depending on you know the cycle of in in the month or, or as I said pregnancy or aging but also other conditions and also could change day to day depending on some microbiota that may be um, going up ascending from from the vaginal mucosa or the periurethral space so so there's there's a dynamic uh, alteration so who exactly is permanently resident versus who is transient is still being identified. I do find fascinating that we find these tertiary infrastructures. Um, you, clearly, we didn't really know about them before. Is this something recent? But are you surprised that having them correlates with more? Uh, so if I understand correctly, it's a higher incidence of urinary tract infections or symptoms of infection how to do because does that make sense or how do we understand that good questions so tertiary lymphoid structures occurring with age um, basically they call tertiary because they occur in tissues that normally don't have them um, uh, is is has been identified in other tissues for example lung gen have tertiary lymphoid structures forming um, the eye forms them with age, uh, and, and even the intestine, which has pyrus patches mm. uh, and, and, um, and, and isolated lymphoid uh, uh, tissues also form them. So, so it, it is, and kidneys have just been recently shown to form uh, tertiary lymphoid structures. So when we identified these in the bladder, uh, that, was, that was definitely um, a, a big shift, but now we're learning that it's, it's a common uh, association uh, with age. Um, mm -hmm. And whether, and, and the paradigm, it, it, was it surprising that it's linked with more UTIs? In fact, the understanding was more that maybe UTIs cause this inflammatory influx right. to happen. Um, right. So that was sort of the idea always. But what we found, our, our studies suggest that it's, it's actually a, a developmental phenomenon because they occur with age. You know, in, in animals, in our female animals, they start occurring. Uh, this You start seeing them forming right after about nine months of age, which is associated with what we call reproductive senescence, um, because mice don't really go through menopause, but they do stop breeding after a while, mm. and usually around nine months of age. So coincident with that, we start seeing small form formation of these lymphoid structures, which then become full-blown structures by about year one of age with, with bona fide germinal centers undergoing all the somatic hypermutation and, and, and uh, having a follicular dendritic cell network, all the aspects uh, of, a, of a germinal active germinal center uh, containing follicle. Um, and um, and so, so they, they seem to occur irrespective of any kind of trigger. Uh, and we, in fact, also looked at age germ-free animals. So these have had no microbiota their entire lives, and now they're 18 months old, um, and they don't they form these tertiary lymphoid structures. So microbiota are not ne necessary to having them. But 
that doesn't discount that if you have recurrent infections, they may yeah. be larger or they may be more numerous or they may be more active and producing um, immunoglobulins. Uh, so, so yes, I guess it was a bit of a surprise in the fact that they're occurring there anyway. Yeah. And then because they're there, we think that they impact um, the incident susceptibility to an incidence of and, and frequency of urinary tract infections. It's fascinating because we know, right, that the overall landscape of the immune system changes substantially throughout age. Uh, there's more, the most, um, the most characteristic thing is the loss of naive populations for in the case of T cells, right? That's my, my focus. I was thinking of T cells and of course they are, they are involved in germinal centers and such. Um, that, I guess that also is probably related. Is that the same also the case for germ-free mice that, that you see this change in an immune population, see a loss of of the pool of of naive cells, and then maybe this uh, this memory cells or these other cells that end up being predominant in older age are kind of somehow related to the generation of these centers. Um, yes, so we we are breaking down the the triggers uh, for the formation of these structures, uh, and one thing that we have identified is that is that uh, there are a subset of macrophages uh, that express uh, this chemokine, uh, lymphoid chemokine, CXCL13. Um, and that population ap starts appearing as the animals age. Um, and this is a, a, a true in the lung as well. Um, and then these macrophages appear to, to arrive in the bladder mucosa and, and submucosa, and then potentially recruit T cells. And we do have a, a preponderance of CD8 uh, T cells uh, over even CD4s, so they're cytotoxic T cells. Um, and then, then you have naive B cells coming in and, and, and maturing into um, plasma cells, antibody-producing plasma cells. So um, in terms of, yes, how that's related with uh, T cell exhaustion with age uh, and, and so on uh, are, are still uh, open-ended questions. So to... To flip a little bit, you also, you, your other love is the placenta, right? How much of the story, before we get into COVID specifically, how much of this story is very similar there? Or is it, since it's not epithelium, it's kind of an endothelial structure and everything else, is it different? Or is it more similar than you would have expected when you jumped in? Yeah, so I can give a little bit of a history uh, uh, to it because uh, my training was in the urinary tract. Um, my PhD, a bit of my PhD, but also my postdoc. But then, when so I, I mentioned earlier uh, that I had discovered these reservoirs of bacteria that can trigger uh, recurrent urinary tract infections. And then that was as a postdoc. And then when I uh, became a faculty member uh, in 2008, uh, it was in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at uh, Washington University School of Medicine. And so, of course, it's OBGYN, so there's a lot of, obviously, pregnancy and, and uh, uh, pregnancy-related uh, con conditions that people were treating. And a big problem in the field, in, in, in the healthcare, con continues that many women give birth prematurely, uh, preterm birth. And so one of the hypotheses was that preterm birth, well, well it is pretty known that preterm birth is strongly associated with infections. 
um, but where the infections, where, you know, how and all are still, you know, investigative uh, areas being investigated. So one hypothesis that my um, department chair and many other senior members of the department wanted me to test uh, is, are there reservoirs inside the placenta that were hidden like the E. coli in the bladder um, and, and then coming out sometime during pregnancy and trigger, triggering preterm birth? So, so that was actually what got me started in looking at the placenta. I, I, I can honestly say that I've never thought about the placenta until I started working on it. Um, even when I gave birth, it was not really relevant, you know, I was more interested in the baby that came out versus the placenta. Um, and so we started investigating uh, different layers of the placenta and, and because there's both the, the maternal side, which is the former maternal uterus that outline that lines the, the that overall lines the placenta then the inner part which is the fetal derived so it's half dad half mom genetically and um and so we started investigating different aspects of the placenta and and in fact started seeing bacteria that were in one of, in the more maternal compartment of of the maternal fetal unit placental unit which was like crazy like Oh, there's bacteria. So at first we thought, oh, these are bacteria there that are, you know, triggering preterm birth. But, but, but we saw them in so many placentas that, you know, we knew were not giving, not coming out at, at preterm. They were perfectly normal, healthy placentas being delivered uh, at term. And and so then we started like thinking about it, uh, uh, like what, it, and, and we found it in quite a few, uh, over 50, 60% of placentas. And so that gave rise to the idea that maybe there was actually resident microbiota in the placenta and, and in, in, area, in, in a whole project that I probably won't touch on too much. Uh, we've actually gone on to identify at least one microbe that lives there. Uh, we've identified its location and potentially its effect and implications for tolerance. Um, and so that, that's a very exciting story. But anyway, so that got us into understanding and thinking about placental barrier function. So the fact that you know, a, a, a small portion of placentas or a small portion of pregnancies uh, you know, give, come out uh, preterm, the majority of them actually are born at term, right? Even given all of the circumstances and all of the conditions that women deal with around the world. And, and so that got us very interested in what are the normal barriers that protect the fetus and that the placenta performs that function. Um, and so then that got us into studying autophagy, which we had already were experts in because we had shown that E. coli in the bladder um, actually live within autophagosomes. That's where they form their reservoirs. Um, and so we had sort of already you know, developed a lot of tools and, and, and animals uh, to study autophagy. So that was our crossover. So we started studying autophagy in, in the placenta and realized and, and showed that, that the placental barrier cells had very high basal levels of autophagy, which meant that they were very like active and, and were able to, even if bacteria and viruses and parasites came in, they were actually very good with, with being able to destroy them so that the fetus didn't get affected. So that's where we were uh, in 2016. Um, when we started hearing about the Zika virus epidemic um, and the fact that uh, women who are pregnant who are infected with Zika were having 
fetuses, babies that had the small head and, and so on. And so because we had all the tools and models, we were able to jump right in and, and show that Zika could cross the placental barrier and go into the fetus. And we showed that it was able to do that because it co-opted the high level of autophagy that occurs in placental cells. So we're able to link the virus. So that got us into the vi field of virology. So we were studying Zika virus and, and, and uh, interactions with placenta uh, and everything. And so when uh, SARS-CoV-2 um, uh, pandemic started, we were like right on, you know, I know that our, our university and our labs and everything shut down on um, uh, March 17th or 19th of 2020. And so, so nothing was happening, but we could still, obviously women were still coming in, you know, and delivering or still pregnant. And, and so immediately we switched with my clinical colleagues to, to you know, setting up universal testing for the virus and all the pregnant women that were coming into our clinic. And then we were able to keep a skeleton crew. Uh, we were not really supposed to do clinical research, but we, of course, the women were coming in so we could consent them and, and, and collect their placentas uh, and, and, of course, blood uh, before delivery and, and follow what happened. So we were already, by April of 2020, gotten our IRB approval to, to start collecting these samples. So by the end of that summer, we started looking at, at these placentas. And so first, it was clear that the, the, this virus, unlike Zika, was not going into the fetus. The fetuses, the babies, seemed to be OK. So that was a big source of relief to everybody. That, that, but the moms were not so OK. The moms, some of them were having very big complications. M many of it was ARDS, you know, so because they got their lungs were infected. And because they were also pregnant, it was just too much for the systems to handle. But we started seeing other problems occurring, and, and one of which was preeclampsia, which is uh, basically hypertension, where a woman can go into uh, start having protein in the urine uh, secreted. And, and then start developing high blood pressure, which then can get to dangerously high levels, leading to a condition called eclampsia, after which you know it's, the woman could easily die in that time period. And so it has to be delivered um, urgently. And so we saw incidental uh, uh, data about women with preeclampsia. But in the lab, we started looking at how or how might that be happening? Or we were actually studying it and then connected it with what was happening clinically, which is that, um, so we know that SARS-CoV-2 spike protein binds to this receptor ACE2, right? Which is, which is present in lung and in our nose and in the, in the intestine, right? So that, that was already getting established very quickly. But it's also expressed in these placental cells especially the cells that have the high autophagy and that form the barrier uh, function of the, of the uh, placenta. And, and so, and then ACE2 is very much involved in a process called a, a, a renin angiotensin system. It's a pathway that is important for controlling blood pressure. So, so, there's, so there's a balance because when you're infected or, 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 or you, know, uh, you need to increase blood pressure so that you get blood flow to everything and, and uh, immune cells going everywhere and so on. Um, but then you can't have it be continuous because then you have hypertension, which is not good. But you also can't have it too low. So, so the balance has to be maintained. 
And of course, we have our systemic renin angiotensin system uh, with, between our heart and our lung and, uh, and our kidneys and so on. But there's also local renin angiotensin systems. And the placenta has its own, which regulates hypertension in pregnancy. And, um, and so we noticed that an ACE2 is an enzyme in this pathway, which actually um, activates sort of the, 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 the pro-angiogenic and the lowering of the blood pressure pathway, okay? Um, and, and ACE is the enzyme that increases hypertension and works through something called angiotensin receptor 1. So ACE inhibitors, you know, we take that. If you have hypertension, you get ACE inhibitors. Um, so that's, that's why we take it, so that it dampens the hypertension. And ACE2 is something that we, we want um, to have to, to, to lower it. Um, Anyway, so when SARS-CoV-2 spike protein binds this ACE2 uh, receptor, it actually takes the receptor into the cell where it gets degraded. And then the viral RNA comes out into the cell and then it can make more viruses and so on and so forth. But when you have less ACE2, then you have an increase in the, the pro-hypertension pathway. Um, and, and, and then that resulted, it results in increased hypertension and production of the downstream targets of the increased hypertension, um, and including what's called autoantibodies to the angiotensin receptor 1, which is pro-hypertension. So, so connecting all of this mechanistically to then our patients, we realized, we saw even early, early on that COVID-positive women, pregnant women, were more likely to have preeclampsia, more than normal. And then since, and that was in, in 2020, and we, and we published a paper on that in early 2021. Um, and then since then, large-scale studies have, have proven that over and over again across multiple cohorts around the world that COVID, COVID infection in pregnancy, even if the woman doesn't have symptoms and, and so on, but still uh, is at much higher risk of developing uh, preeclampsia. So, so that's been very fascinating to understand the connection. And, and also to follow some of these women uh, over time and see whether the presence of the autoantibodies, which you know don't now no longer need the virus to, to trigger it, they're already there. And, and do they continuously agonize the angiotensin receptor one and, and promote hypertension in these women? We hope it, it's not, but, uh, but that's something we're watching for is if are these women more at risk of, of developing um, hypertension um, even after the babies have been delivered. Uh, Such important research. I remember those early days when we really had no idea what the risks were for any specific population. And I, especially pregnant women, you know, you have no idea. Unfortunately, it turned out that it was very uh, problematic for women. And that's why well, vaccination for pregnant women is also so important. Um, but yeah, it really, really brings me back to the start of the pandemic and all the questions and. It's, um, it's good to know that, yeah, you, you managed to very early on start looking into it closely. And I just want to say one more thing, because I also think that you touched on it. How important is our understanding of this, uh, this, this, this microbes that don't live like in the gut, like next to our cells, but they live inside our cells and they have reservoirs. They manage to live really inside the, the our own uh, tissues. And I think that's very, very interesting. We, some time ago, we discussed a paper, like very, some long time ago about the microbiome of tumors and how you find 
bacterial cells are living inside tumor cells, being protected one way or another in some kind of endosomal uh, compartment, and they can survive in there. And that's, I think, is a very also very interesting thing to keep in mind that bacteria not only live on us, but like literally inside of us. Important point because uh, because then they're hidden, right? And um, um, and and we're discovering more and more uh, that. Because the, the paradigm, the, the dogma was that, you know, bacteria are outside, always outside uh, in, in the gut or in other things. And, uh, but but uh, it's not just in the bladder. We see that bacteria can be in vaginal cells and, of course, in lung cells and, and, and uh, even in, in uh, brain cells. So we, we are, uh, and not just bacteria, you know, uh, yeast <laughs> can be found uh, sitting in, in uh, brain cells in occlusions. Uh, covered in chitin, so they don't get recognized. Um, and I think that uh, microbiology um, is is really uh, undergoing big change. Not only with the whole idea of commensal microbiota, which which you know uh, Jason knows, I, I did my PhD in in a gut microbiome lab, and at that time, uh, you know the idea the gut microbiome we thought was only there to help us digest. The food that came through the intestine, and and now we know they affect everything, including how we feel and and our response to chemotherapeutic uh, drugs, and and uh, and 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 our response to viruses and and other things. And so uh, you know they're very active, uh, and and without them, perhaps some of the pathogens couldn't do what they do because they're all feeding each other certain sugars and things like that and and then and then to find that tissues that we thought were sterile uh, are, are not sterile and that there's microbes in, in the urine there's microbes uh, in, in the placenta and 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 more um, and also and then the third point which is what you just alluded to brenda is that then microbes are not just free floating they can actually be living long term inside our cells um, and i mean we knew that of course uh, there's some viruses that are um, that that are uh, latent that can go into a latent phase, but bacteria can do that too, and 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 parasites as well. And so I think we're always evolving our understanding of them. And uh, and and the thing to remember that my PhD advisor always said is that they've been around for a zillion more years than we have. So we evolved to house them. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so so we're we're just learning to appreciate how many niches and nooks and crannies within us that they had found <laughs> to, to, to be in, or perhaps we grew up around them, you know? Yeah, I like that idea. We grew up around them. Yeah, we grew up around them. And it's about time to uh, transition off. So my question for you is, um, getting inside yourself a little bit, if you weren't a scientist, what would you be? Well, um, that's, that's a good question because I have always wanted to be a scientist. Uh, when I was 10 was when I decided that I was going to get my PhD and then I was going to be a professor and have my own group. And, and, and so I'm living my dream. But if I was not a scientist, then um, I, I would probably be an ambassador. Um, and, and just like I work in multiple fields, uh, I have grown up in multiple countries uh, in my life and grown up in multiple cultures. And I'm very comfortable uh, in almost any uh, environment. I speak multiple languages. Um, 
and and so uh, I, I would I would be an ambassador, I think, uh, and travel in different countries and represent, you know, build 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 relationships between people and countries and cultures. Sounds like an exciting option as well. I like it. <laughs> It's been so nice talking to you today. Before we leave, uh, this is your chance to let the world know if you're looking to recruit anyone to your lab, any open postdoc, graduate student positions, PhDs uh, that you would like to share, this is the moment. Thank you very much. I um, moved to Baylor College of Medicine uh, just about a year ago and have been busy um, building our new group here. And uh, I'm always looking for uh, postdoctoral trainees uh, or, or senior scientists, particularly those who are interested in microcell immunology. So I would definitely, whether it's placenta or, or uh, bladder, uh, people are interested in looking at um, the immunology of the tissue and how it's affected by age and infection. That would be Excellent. fantastic. Where are the listeners? Now you know, a great opportunity, great PI. Just sign up. And with this, we thank you so much for your time. And uh, we're looking forward to see what else comes from your research. And we thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much, Brenda. Thank you, Jason. It's been great being here and, and always happy to talk about our research. And, and, uh, and one that I always put in that, uh, you know, doing science is, is fantastic and, and everything, but also uh, as, a, as scientists, it's very important that we communicate our research and uh, our findings and the implications of our work with, with the general public and with everybody, really. And so I particularly appreciate this opportunity to share our work uh, with the greater audience. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Adam Podcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com. See you next time.